Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Well, they certainly have just what I need. Hi, I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we chat with Wayfair's co-founder and CEO, Neeraj Shah, as we discuss his formative years at Cornell, his deep roots in entrepreneurship, and how he has guided the company towards greater success despite a global pandemic. In this month's edition, we are joined by Neeraj Shah. He is co-founder and CEO of Wayfair, and he comes to us from Boston, where the company is based. Neeraj, thank you so much for joining us. I have a ton of questions for you on Wayfair, since we've all started spending a lot more money on the website during the lockdown, but that's just the latest chapter in your amazing story. I wanna go back to your early days um, when you first realized that you wanted to start your own business. Like so many of the guests we feature here on Cornell Tech at Bloomberg, you had this entrepreneurial inkling, but you didn't know that that was a career option. You had a lawn mowing business. Uh, you also delivered papers when you were growing up. What was the moment that you realized that you could become an entrepreneur? You know, I would say this was really the um, last semester at Cornell. Um, the um, Steve Conine and I took uh, the, the only entrepreneurship course that existed at Cornell at the time. Today, there's over 300. And we had to write a business plan as, as the class project. We ended up starting our business right out of that. And we decided to give it the summer when we decided to give it a year and, and it kept going and it was successful. And so I was aware that entrepreneurship was a thing. You know, my grandfather was an entrepreneur, but I never realized it was something one could pursue just right out of college. And so that, that took me by surprise. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, when you were an undergraduate at Cornell, it was the mid 90s, and this was a class that was part of the Johnson School of Business. So it's something that wasn't even really that much on offer to undergraduates. Now, Cornell is a common thread between you and your co-founder, Steve Conine, because you met him during Cornell Summer College, which, if I recall, is the summer between your junior and senior year of high school. And then you guys reunited when you're doing your undergrad at Cornell. Is this something that you talked about back when you were 16 years old? You know, we ended up three doors apart on our freshman year floor through just random happenstance. And uh, the two of us, along with a group of folks, um, you know, on that floor ended up becoming good friends, you know, and we ended up living together the last couple of years of college. Steve and I ended up starting the company right out of college. But none of this was like a master plan. Some of this was just, um, you know, taking things as they came. And, um, you know, Looking back now, it's a kind of a great story, but I, I don't know that at the time, it, it, you know, it was sort of one decision led to the next. And you mentioned how you both had entrepreneurial instincts, but you had every intention of going to grad school, of going to law school. And Steve had plans to join his family's business. So at what point did those converge and you guys decided, let's do something together? Well, you know, we were taking the entrepreneurship course because I think it was just an area of personal interest and passion, but not because we necessarily thought we were going to do something right out of it. What ended up happening is through the course of uh, researching to the business plan, to create the business plan, um, we ended up having some companies ask us to create websites for them. So we, so we did that. And then Time Warner came along with an opportunity for a project and asked us to do that. And we said, yes, that ended up taking um, a, a fair amount of the summer. And so sort of one thing led to the next. And um, at that point, 
you know, we decided to really see if we could turn it into a business. And um, sure enough, you know, we built a website for the National Business Aircraft Association. And then we, you know, sort of one thing led to led to the next. One of the folks who was on the Time Warner project ended up being one of the four folks who launched uh, the New York Times on the web. And so a lot of the work came from word of mouth. And, you know, it's sort of, um, I'd say we were enjoying it. So we kind of kept trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we grow it? How do we get more business? What do we do next? So it kind of developed organically. How did you decide how to divide the labor? I mean, both of you wanted to be entrepreneurs, but um, there's so much to do when you co-found a company. What do you decide? How do you decide who does what? And were there a lot of arguments in the process? So, you know, at this point, we've been business partners for 25 years. And I think part of what has allowed that to, to work so well and be so successful is that, frankly, we were drawn to different areas of the business. Now, in the very beginning of the very first business, we actually decided who was going to do what. And the irony is within the first few weeks, we ended up more or less migrating to different roles just out of personal interest. And then what's happened is those roles we migrated to are what we've kept up with now for 25 years. And so it's one of those things where I always tell folks, you know, a business partnership requires a couple things for sure. And one of them is that you need to really trust each other's judgment um, because if you don't, it's just not going to work. And the second is it really works much better when you have complementary skills. And, you know, and if you both want to do the same things and no one wants to do the other things, that doesn't work very well. And so in this case, this was another uh, piece that was just very fortuitous. Okay, so the two of you formed three businesses in total and Wayfair is the last one. But the first one was the one that you did when you were um, at Cornell and it was about helping local businesses in Ithaca, creating a website for companies. How did that get resolved? Did you end up selling it? Did you end up folding it into something else? So we ended up right after we graduated, we moved to Boston. So we built the company up in Boston. We ended up growing it to about 40 people and in about just under four years. And at that point we sold it. We sold it to a company called IXL. That was one of about a dozen companies that went public um, during kind of the dot-com years, 98, 99, 2000. Um, and we stayed with IXL for a couple of years as it grew uh, tremendously. And, and I'd say we learned a lot through that journey. We both had left IXL in 2000 and then um, sort of figured out what we wanted to, to do next. Um, 2001, we tried to build a software company that ended up, you know, it, it was interesting. The timing just wasn't right. The software product we built, it was too early for the market. You know, we learned from that. And, and we, but we decided to go back to the drawing board. And in 2002, March of 2002 is when we started Wayfair. Okay, now before Wayfair became Wayfair, it was actually called CSN Stores, and it was a really a network of different e-commerce websites. You guys launched this website initially in August of 2002. It was racksandstands.com, which sold speaker stands and TV stands. And by December of that year, it had about a quarter of a million dollars in sales. Explain how you found your first customers at a time when it was still very early days for online marketing. Yeah, so I think one of the things that allowed us to be successful is that we um, we had the service mentality you need to have as a retailer, but we also had the technology and quantitative skills to basically make sure that the, the website was very functional, well-designed, easy to navigate, easy for someone to navigate a large selection. But um, frankly, the other thing that mattered was that this was the early days of some of the forms of online advertising that we take for granted today. And so Google paid search, um, which at the time was called Google AdWords. And uh, there was a competitor product on Yahoo called Overture. Those let you advertise against keywords and you could track the traffic that came in. And so what we did is we basically would bid to get the traffic and we could measure exactly what it was worth to us. And so where we would increase the bids or lower the bids, 
and that type of quantitative marketing, and this was the early days of it, but that's, uh, that's effectively for the, for the first number of years, that was sort of the vehicle by which we built the business in terms of how we would get folks to visit the website. So you're constantly getting feedback on your different ideas and on the businesses. Talk about how that folded into how you decided what domains to launch, because you launched other storefronts with unique domain names for everything from strollers to power drills to hot plates. And eventually, I think there are more than 200 of these e-commerce websites under the CSN umbrella, the network. Did you have a particular process or checklist for deciding whether to launch a website for a particular product category? The primary thing we did in the early years is we would, our suppliers would tell us about other categories that were working well for them. We would then use the online search data where you could actually see the number of people searching any particular keyword to validate how big a market we thought it would be. And then we would look at the competitors to decide how, you know, what do we think of our ability to compete. But effectively what ended up happening is we worked our, all our way through furniture over three years. Then we went through decor, we went through home improvement, we went through housewares and effectively ended up building out all these home categories. And along the way, we were opportunistic and added a few more in. And that's really when we moved to Wayfair, we got rid of the opportunistic ones and we said, we're just gonna focus on home. What was the most unusual uh, domain or unusual domain name that you had? I think there was one, I'm hopefully get the name right. I think it was allroosterdecor.com. All rooster decor, you mean like things that have pictures of roosters on them? Correct, there's a, there's a tremendous amount in the decor space that's one of the more popular uh, popular themes. And um, now, mind you, it's a very narrow market, but the, uh, we, we, were, we were launching small and broad category sites because one of the things you could find is that it could be a small category, but if customers really wanted it, it would feel like they'd found the perfect place. And was this something that a supplier recommended, all rooster decor? Um, so what had happened is we had gotten to a point where we had built out a lot of categories. And at that point, we started to, to launch sites that could, that could kind of cut across them. And so that was one of those. I'd say the vast majority of the sites were more along the lines of you know, bedroomfurnituredirect.com or allbarstools.com, everyfaucet.com. Okay, it's like an interdisciplinary major at college or something. Um, <laughs> you consolidated um, more than 200 sites under the new brand Wayfair eventually in 2011. What was the rationale behind deciding to consolidate the brand? Was there a specific moment? Yeah, so starting in 2008, we had found that, you know, hey, one of the large opportunities is that our customers are filling out surveys after buying from us, telling us that they really were very happy with us. They thought our service was excellent. They would, that, you know, that they would shop with us again. Now, the problem is they obviously didn't need a bar stool again, or they didn't need a faucet again anytime soon. So the question we asked is, well, are you aware that we have 250 other websites? and 70% said no. So what we did over, over a year and a half is we really tried to get a lot better at our email marketing and our other messaging to really explain, hey, we have these 250 other websites. And so if you really had a great experience with us for barstools, you would for lighting or you would, you, you would for um, area rugs. And what we found through that is over the, over the year and a half, we were able to double our repeat customer rate. And so we found that for customers who were paying attention, we could really get them to, to come back more and more often. They were making a lot of home goods purchases. The problem was that 70% that said they had not heard of us, a year and a half later when we ran that same survey and we continued to run it, 70% continued to not be aware of us. And so what we really found was that if you really want everyone to know what you're doing, you really need to build a brand that people um, will find memorable and easy to understand. And that's what led us down the road of saying, hey, we, you know, if we want to do this, we need to build a brand. And that, that ultimately a year later led to launching Wayfair. Why Wayfair? What does the brand itself mean or the name of the brand mean? 
Well, today we hope it means that it's, it's the place to go for everything home. Um, when we launched it, it was um, we needed a short spellable term that did not have any particular connotations that we thought we could build up into being the ultimate home store. And so at the time, you know, domain names have been being taken for many, many years. And so it wasn't that you could find just any term. You had to really create one. Um, and here we, we basically found one that we really liked that didn't violate anyone's trademarks that we could get in all the countries that we um, uh, operated in and wanted to operate in. Um, and we thought we could build it up into being the ultimate home store. Yeah, I ask because it doesn't necessarily signal that it's home decor or home furnishings or anything related to the home. And so it can be whatever you want it to be down the road if you decide to expand into something else. Yeah, and I think, to, to be honest, I think we're still only halfway to building it up to being understood as all things home. I think there's still a lot of our customers who love us, who think of us for furniture and decor. But they think about home improvement, whether it's uh, doors and cabinet hardware or lighting or plumbing or flooring and tile. They may not know that, hey, Wayfair is as strong in those as it is in furniture and decor or same for housewares. You know, and so I, I think I think you're right. You can build it up to mean more things over time. I think right now we're just very focused on it meaning home. Okay, and there's plenty of work to be done on that front. Now, you said that you started um, CSN, which of course became Wayfair, during a time when e-commerce businesses were kind of out of fashion, and this was after the dot-com bubble burst. And this ended up being an advantage for you, Neeraj, because there's space that created opportunity for you. Describe the competitive landscape at the time. What did it look like back then? Yeah, so at, at the time, in 2002, you know, Amazon was already on the scene, um, but you know, remember they started with books, they'd expanded into other categories, there are some categories I'd say they were getting known for, like electronics. There were still a lot of categories that perhaps they weren't known for. But by 2002, all the national retailers had opened up websites. So whether that was Walmart or Target or Home Depot or whomever. And so, you know, that's led to some view that, hey, an online, you know, an e-commerce company wouldn't have opportunity because you have to compete with national retailers. Our view, what we had found was that, hey, there are these niches that were not well served. And at the time, we didn't really ha have the full understanding, but over time we developed it, which was just that home is on one hand, a very vast category. It's 10% of all retail sales, you know, B2B and B2C is 400 billion in North America, 400 billion in Europe. So you have an $800 billion market we're going after. On the other hand, that's only 10% of all physical retail goods. And the challenge is home. There's not like a handful of companies in home. Everyone's in home. You know, Target has a few aisles to the side. Walmart has some home items. Home Depot has some home items. There's decor specialists. There's places like Bed Bath and Beyond, Macy's, and 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 then there's all the local players. Furniture, lighting showrooms, plumbing showrooms. These are typically local players. And so we didn't realize this at the time, but what happened was that we started to fill in a white space, which is just that home is different enough that it creates the opportunity for someone to be the platform provider for home, and the fact that there wasn't one nationally because no one had been able to offer selection before was sort of what created just such a huge opening. And we sort of tiptoed our way into that without realizing entirely what the opportunity was. And then as we've seen it, we've continued to go after it. So it sounds pretty fortuitous, but at the same time, a few years later, of course, you had to deal with the uh, financial crisis, the subprime mortgage crisis. And all of a sudden, all these homeowners who are stocking their newly purchased homes had to give up their homes. How did that affect your sales and how did that affect what you were able to offer everyone? Yeah, so that period, that 2008 to 2010 timeframe, over three years, at the time about three quarters of our business was furniture. And over three years, the furniture industry 
contracted from over a hundred billion dollar industry down to seventy billion dollars. It was um, it was close to and and the second worst after the Great Depression. So it was it was a pretty big contraction. What was interesting for us is that our business, other than the first few months where the business really slowed down, it actually we grew through that period. And when we look back on you know why what happened, we came to realize is that customers were increasingly getting comfortable with online. And during periods of kind of severe dislocation, they're more willing to change their habits than they are during times when things are good. And so the fact that we had value, the fact that they could explore different price points and different selection that was available, these things were quite attractive to them when they were under the duress of the financial crisis, even more than they would be when times were good and they had plenty of money. And, and so that ended up creating an opportunity. And by growing through that period, a lot of our suppliers who had had challenges um, ended up realizing, man, e-commerce is a real opportunity because they grew through that period with us while some of their other customers contracted. And so I think what we learned from that was that this is just a long-term secular change that's underway. It's not a mature segment that's riding sort of uh, you know economic cycles. You were able to find the people who are still willing to spend. They perhaps just not were just not spending in a more conspicuous way by going into stores and doing it, but were doing it from the comfort of their home. Um, if you were to start a business today and talking about that idea where there might be space and opportunity, is there an area where people might think it's out of fashion, a sector or a category that's out of fashion, but where you think there might actually be a lot of opportunity? You know, what I tell folks is, you know, if you think about 1995 being the start of the commercial internet, you'd say, okay, we're 25 years in. And even though we're 25 years in, we might only be 20 or 30% of the way through the evolution. And the thing about it is the next 70 or 80% of the evolution will not take another 25 or 50 years. It'll take another 10 or 15 years because everyone's now carrying a smartphone. Everyone is accustomed to apps and internet solutions and folks are willing to try new services if they're in fact convenient and provide value. And so what I tell entrepreneurs when they ask this question is just simply think about what services you use or pay attention to what services others use. And then think about what exists today in terms of ways that's being provided. And if you can do it in a way that's more convenient and better, customers will be willing to try it. And um, that's sort of the premise for a lot of businesses that are still viewed as relatively new, but but are growing very quickly. Like, for example, during the pandemic, I'm sure we've all been ordering uh, home delivery of meals. And if you look at the, the meal delivery services, you know, that on one hand, you say is a very simple service offering. On the other hand, it hasn't existed for that long. And so I think this is the type of thing you're going to see happen to every service and, and, and product offering that's out there. Well, what about services like education or healthcare, which have been a lot more resistant to uh, to this kind of change that you're talking about? Absolutely. So things like retail, which are lo low regulation, and uh, they're going to be some of the first to get tackled. When you talk about healthcare and education to a lesser degree, financial services, th those are still left um, to a high degree in front of us partially because there's, there's a lot of regulation in them and partially because if you think about things like healthcare and, and education, there's deeply embedded ways that these things are provided today. It doesn't mean that customers are not interested in better solutions. It just means that there's more complicated and it'll take longer for the evolution to play out. Is there an area you would avoid because it's too crowded? Do you know, I think the places that are the most crowded are where there's already effectively winners. You know, I mentioned as an example, I was talking about meal delivery. I can't imagine that there's an angle to launch meal delivery today and be the winner, but perhaps you have an idea that would allow you to do that. So that's what you got to decide. You know, Google was the last of the major search engines. There were quite a few that preceded it. Alta Vista, Lycos, Excite at Home, Yahoo. There's a long list. 
yet Google was the big winner. They were the last one. So perhaps you have that type of breakthrough idea, but unless it's really a breakthrough idea that makes the service a lot better, I would say the crowded fields that have kind of entrenched scale folks are probably the hardest ones. Okay, if you have a breakthrough idea, is it important to be passionate about it, to be obsessed with it, or is it more important to understand and be able to exploit the market dynamics? Because you have said that you and Steve Conine, your co-founder, weren't particularly passionate about home furnishings, home decor when you started CSN stores. You know, I, I actually think that you really do need to be passionate about the idea. I think the challenge is that every idea, you know, there's the good days and there's the tough days and not everything is always easy and simple. And so that passion is what keeps you going when things are tougher. And I think uh, if you just get into an idea because you think it's a good business idea and or you think it's lucrative, I think the problem is that when if it's if it's a stretch where it's tough sledding, it's it's it becomes very hard for you to have the same degree of passion and excitement to keep moving. Yeah, well, one of your passions I know is to be able to work with your suppliers and to make things better for your suppliers. Um, talk a little bit about what you do to achieve that. I mean, how exactly do you make things better for your supplier? So our suppliers are very accustomed to a traditional retail model where frankly, they, they need to you know, convince a retail store buyer to put their product on the floor and then offer it to customers. They don't have the ability to directly reach out to customers. And so one of the things that we think is really powerful about what we're providing suppliers is that all the energy they put into product, uh, into product design and into quality uh, manufacturing, and they have a selection they think is incredibly, you know, um, right, you know, for the customer. We allow them to put that in front of the customer. And the fact that we're not in between them and the customer, but we're enabling it, puts them in a lot more control building their business. And suppliers like that because they're they're entrepreneurs too and they, they want to be able to control their destiny. And they also see that the movement of volume is moving towards e-commerce. And so if they can be on an e-commerce platform that has volume, that provides things like the logistics that are the complicated pieces that they can't handle, but then enable them to put the product out there and reach the customer, that's a pretty exciting value proposition. And so we, we spent a lot of time just trying to make sure that suppliers understand all the tools that we have on our platform that they have the ability to use, that they don't need to ask someone for permission. Um, they don't, you know, they don't need to convince someone it's a good idea. They can actually get in there and start using those tools. And ultimately customers are gonna wanna buy what's best for them. And so if the supplier is right and their item is the right fit for that customer, we want the customer to discover it and choose to buy it. So basically you're giving the suppliers instant feedback on a lot of their products and through the data that you accumulate based on what your customers are buying. Um, what, what do they learn? What, what's the most interesting piece of information that your suppliers have learned from you through your customers? You know, I think some of the things around like what type of content and imagery matters to customers, understanding, you know, the, the, the price points that demand falls at in a very granular way, things that they, they, that they can then use when they either design products or choose how to merchandise them. A lot of our uh, suppliers, you know, they, they just tell us they've never had that type of information before. And all the work they've done in those areas has been blind to really understanding what people would react to. Yeah, they're just kind of designing things on their own, thinking that this might be something the end customer will like and then putting it out there and hopefully someone goes and buys it. Um, one thing that I've read is that you don't actually hold any inventory, Wayfair. And in fact, it's your suppliers who hold the inventory. Is that the case? And are there instances where it might be easier for you to hold inventory? 
We've tried to set it up to be the best of both worlds. And by that, what I mean is that on one hand, we want to bring the full selection to bear for the customer. And so rather than us making choices and saying, oh, we'll buy this item, we won't buy that item. And we've effectively picked for the customer what's going to be available. We want every supplier to be able to lean in with all the products they want to offer. The only way tenably to do that is for the suppliers to have to carry the inventory of what they want to offer. And so that's the reason we go with that model. It benefits the suppliers, it benefits the customers by making more selection available and creating more demand on the platform. Now, what we do to try to make it work easier from a practical standpoint is we do a couple things. One is once an item gains some traction, we provide the supplier demand data showing them what forecast we expect that item to have based on how it's performing on the platform so they can have a point of view on the amount of inventory that they should carry. The second thing we do is we provide a logistics infrastructure. We have 18 million square feet of logistics. And what we do is whether it's ocean freight and drayage or the warehouses, we have 15 million square foot warehouses, a million square foot warehouses, 17 football fields worth of space. And these go up 30, 40, 50, 60 feet high. Um, and, and then we do the home delivery operations. This allows suppliers to basically optimize their experience for customers without having to have all of the infrastructure themselves. And so we're trying to do kind of the best of both worlds where we make it work very well for the suppliers, but we're also optimizing for the customer and allowing them to really get access to that world selection of goods to find the perfect item. Got it. Okay, let's talk about this year, the pandemic and what that's done for your business. When the economy was at its worst in March, when we went into this unexpected sudden lockdown, you saw sales go up. At what point did you realize that the pandemic was going to be a boon, not just a boon, but a big boon for your business? Yeah, so when the lockdown started in mid-March, we actually saw demand start to rise right away. At first, in sort of a set of categories, um, things that you would use for cooking, refrigerators, freezers, cookware, things that you'd use for having kids at home, kids' desks, kids' furniture, uh, trampoline, swing sets, for things that you would use to work at home, desks, office chairs. Um, and then fairly quickly, um, just in a matter of weeks, it started to broaden out to all of the home categories that we're in. And demand sort of uh, kept rising. Um, and then starting sometime in the spring or summer started to taper some, but it still stayed at very elevated levels. So I would say that we saw the demand pretty much right away. What was hard to predict, given the nature of a pandemic, the lack of other you know, um, uh, situations that resembled it, is we couldn't tell what would be a spike versus what would be continued demand. And we also couldn't tell how the economy was gonna fare. Didn't know what type of stimulus would, was gonna be there, didn't know what sort of economic support was gonna be there. And so the fear wasn't so much that we weren't seeing a demand spike, the fear was just around the durability of it and what was to happen next. So at what point did you realize that the demand was sustainable, that it's going to last, that it wasn't, it was going to be more than just a spike? I would, see, I would say that seeing the economy stabilize. So unemployment sort of took off, but then you saw it sort of get better and you saw the economy fundamentally stabilize with the exception of certain sectors that have been hit very hard, you know, in terms of tourism and hospitality, entertainment. But outside of those sectors, you've seen broad-based stability and you, you, you've seen that, um, you know, so the job loss, um, which had gotten very bad, had, has started to get better. And it's still at an elevated level but it's actually showing signs of, of, of healing. And so that then has given us a view that what's happening is more durable. You're also seeing households saving more money. And so the parts of their discretionary income that have been freed up, they've been able to, to save. And so what they're using for home goods is, is out of a bucket that still has the net saving more. 
And what you see is that unfortunately the pandemic has a kind of a have and have nots. And so we're talking about folks who, who have jobs and have excess income. There's a lot of folks who basically didn't have any excess income, didn't necessarily have a lot of savings and where the jobs um, have either been eliminated or curtailed. And those are folks who are having a, a really tough time. And I think the pandemic, unfortunately, has not uh, treated everyone equally. And that's that's um, that's the challenge. We, we, we all need to figure out how to make that better. Yeah, although the federal government did try to address that with the stimulus that they passed, the, the several rounds of stimulus. How directly did you feel the effects of the stimulus when it first passed and then later on when it lapsed and it was not renewed? What I would say is the um, the stimulus, which was the uh, the checks that were directly sent to households, the $1,200, um, that had a stimulative effect for sure. You see a spike that's relatively short in nature. You see something like that every year when people get their tax returns. This was more significant than that, but it's similar. Um, in terms of the other stimulus that the government has passed, whether it's the PPP loans or whether it is extending unemployment benefits through um, um, the end of July in terms of increasing the amounts, um, a lot of those items I don't think necessarily show up in what we've seen for demand because those are basically uh, funds that I think folks use for kind of core necessities, you know, food, shelter, rent payments, um, uh, keeping their business afloat, things of that sort. And so I think, um, you know, it's it's hard for us to get a read on those items. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. So if there is another round of stimulus, it might not be something that you see um, have a direct effect on your sales in the months to come because it will go to the core basics, gasoline for your car, food for your refrigerator. To what extent were you prepared for the surge in growth that you saw in the spring? Is there a, is there a way to prepare that kind of unexpected sharp growth? You know, what I would say is I, on one standpoint, I would say there's no way to prepare. On the other hand, I would say what, what did prepare us is that six, we've been public for six years. In 2014, when we went public in the fall of 2014, that year, our direct retail sales was about $1.1 billion. And this year, we're on track, you know, I forget what the exact analyst consensus is, but it's somewhere in the $13, $14 billion range. And so over six years, that growth, last year, we did over $9 billion. That growth has been a CAGR of 40% per year. And so we're accustomed to growing quickly. That said, this, this demand shock, which was very significant, um, you know, that that we weren't ready for. And so I'm just proud of our team. I think everyone rallied and did a tremendous job, whether that is in customer service, where we had the same number of people the day before as the day after, and yet demand has spiked. And now we have folks working from home trying to make that work, whether that's in our 65 logistics operations, where you've got overnight implementing, you know, social distancing and different yeah. cleaning and safety protocols. So it's, um, you know, everyone made it work. And I think our team did a great job, but it it's very hard to be fully prepared. Yeah. Well, everyone had to make it work. And of course, companies had to spend a lot of money um, in ways that they might not have planned for. And like other companies, Wayfair raised money in the early spring as well. In early April, you raised about $535 million uh, from investors led by private equity firms, which I thought was interesting. Why did you decide to go down that road instead of selling corporate bonds at a time when the Federal Reserve was backstopping the credit market and making it easy for companies to do that? Yeah. So at the time, you know, as I mentioned, demand had, had had grown, but we didn't know what the sustainability of that was. And while on one hand, we had a bunch of cash on the balance sheet, if you ran real shock scenarios, we said, well, geez, we would prefer to be more better capitalized than we are now. I would say that our financial profile we had at that point in time with what with the with the overhang, we, I don't think that we could have uh, accessed traditional debt in, a, in an easy and fast manner. And our view was that if we're going to raise money, we want to do that quite quickly, because frankly, 
um, waiting is not a good move because if you end up needing the capital, you won't be able to get it. And so what we did is we just over the span of two weeks, we raised capital um, and we raised it at quite good prices relative to where we were then. And it was effectively what we thought of as a very expensive insurance policy. But because our prospects were so bright, it just seemed unwise to, to at all carry any risk on, on not having a strong enough balance sheet. Yeah, so it sounded like you were being cautious and and doing what you could at the time. When I look at Wayfair's share price, it's uh, up about 15 times from the low in March. Do you think investors got things wrong back in March? I, we still don't have the COVID-19 under control in any way, shape or form. The new case count is surging and we haven't even hit the, the, the deepest part of winter yet or even fall for that matter. What do the sales trends that you're seeing across Wayfair tell you about how things are going to shake out or how grim things could be. Is there a way to get a read on that? Yeah, so it's it's very hard to get a read on, you know, what's happening broadly. What I will say is, you know, demand for home goods remains strong. And specifically, I think on Wayfair, we've had a set of long investors who've really studied the business and understand how well we're going to do when you look out over one year, three years, five years, 10 years. And so I think our share price today doesn't even fully uh, bake all that in if you compare our gross profit multiple to, to other um, consumer uh, tech uh, companies that have done well. But you know this will be proven out over time. I think uh, what we saw in March is certainly uh, the stock market's reaction, I think positing that perhaps we would go out of business, which of course um, we didn't ever believe, but I think that you see these types of reactions in extreme circumstances. Right. Um, I want to talk about something that happened over the summer because there was this period where your employees walked out to protest the sale of about $200,000 worth of beds to a nonprofit government contractor that operates shelters for migrant children along the U.S.'s southwestern border. Explain to us what happened there and how you addressed it. Yeah, so that was um, a year and a half ago. So that was the summer before this last one. And what happened was that we had a group of employees who did not like um, the um, the immigration um, policies of the of the government, and so and so what 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 ended up happening was they sort of um, wanted to protest uh, something that was not Wayfair specific, which was the broad uh, broad based policies, but they um, sort of focused in on the fact that we were providing beds to the shelter. I don't think they fully understood that it was even a nonprofit shelter. Our view is that we have a great group of employees and there's a wide variety of diverse opinions out there. Um, the way we thought about it is, hey, we need to have a forum for internal discussion where folks can share share their views. But at the same time, Wayfair as a business is going to support a wide range of customers. And so we basically internally um, got a group together and we discussed it. And I would say that that's yet another step um, that's gone really well for us where we have a very tight knit group of employees. And I think they want to be a participant in the company. They want to be a participant in society, um, and you know that enthusiasm. We we try to we try to encourage it and hope they channel it into positive things. And in the end, I think you donated a hundred thousand dollars to the American Red Cross as well. There was a lot of criticism that Wayfair's response was a little bit wishy-washy. Um, employees, some unnamed employees, said that you weren't trying to commit to anything too specifically. Why not take more of a firm stance? I think of Microsoft, for instance, which um, took a stand to a similar protest by not going to withhold um, technology from institutions that, according to Sacha Nadella, we've elected in our democracies. Um, ultimately, may not have been something that employees agreed with, but it was a straightforward and transparent response that quelled the matter and didn't lead to a walkout. 
Well, what we, you know, I would say, you know, it's, we're a relatively young company compared to Microsoft. And so in that sense, I think we're continuing to learn how to create all the internal forms for discussion. Um, this, this particular situation you're referring to led, led to one of those. In fact, the policy that that team came up with, I thought is a very good one, which is there's very, you know, our, our, the, basically the policy is we're not going to sell to hate groups. And there's a specific definition of, of what that is, but it also recognizes that's a wide variety of people who are our customers, a wide variety of organizations, and we don't necessarily expect every individual to agree with every one of them. So I think we similarly have points of view, and it's just a matter of creating the forums internally for the conversation. And this is one that we've since created. Yeah, I mean, it's growing pains of any new company. And you're right in pointing out that Microsoft has uh, been around a lot longer and dealt with uh, bigger, more existential issues, including the whole antitrust uh, lawsuit by the government. Now, we talked about how that happened a summer ago, um, not this past summer, but this summer, Wayfair was the target of a conspiracy theory that claimed some of your products were being used for child trafficking and that you actually resigned from the company. Clearly, this didn't happen. You're still with the company. You didn't resign. How did you address that story? And, and what, what did that experience teach you? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'd say there, what, I, there's a few things we noticed. So one, you have a baseless conspiracy theory that is being debunked by any legitimate media outlet and yet is getting carried on on social media, you know, on started on Reddit and uh, getting spread on TikTok and Twitter. And it just kind of shows you that the, the kind of focus on making sure that there's honesty in, in what's being shared and spread is an important thing that needs to happen. And the way it's done today is, is not that accurate. I would say on what happened there is that that one, at least it was, um, it, it was, there was great clarity in what was accurate. The Wayfair had nothing to do with this baseless conspiracy theory that it was basically groups that are not out for the, for the truth, not out for the better interest. Um, and, and we're seeing, I think, moves where you're seeing that the kind of modern day media outlets are finding that they need to worry about the honesty of communication more and more. Yeah, well, given the political environment and how the election unfolded, are conspiracy theories or these kinds of conspiracy theories a risk that consumer facing businesses like yours really should be have to have to prepare for in some way? Well, I think I think, yes, I think any business. Um, you know, that's that at a certain scale should make sure that they are being proactive and in, in communicating what they stand for, what they believe and making sure that, um, you know, if folks are coming out with accusations that they respond because, you know, that that can happen. And you certainly don't want uh, falsehoods to, to gain any momentum. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I just think how for a company like yours, where you're mainly online, um, and that's how people associate Wayfair, that it becomes more of a risk than perhaps other brands where they're, they're more known for their storefronts. Yeah, and I think, I think we live in a, an age where you're seeing, um, you know, how corporate communication works is, and, and, and just how information spreads through media is definitely changing. So I think that's, a, that's definitely an, a fast evolving and, and, and large challenge for any company. All right, let's talk a little bit about how um, your business is going right now in the current environment where the economy is open, but in a modified way. You've said that you prefer, you prefer to have people working in the office, working together face-to-face um, -face, as opposed to remotely. What does Wayfair's operations look like right now? What percentage of your employees are working from home? Who's uh, able to go into the office? 
Yeah, so I'd say the vast majority of our corporate staff and customer service groups are working uh, from home. Um, when the pandemic started, they all moved to work from home. Um, we've been able to open up uh, some of our office space in a very limited capacity way. And even when we've done that, we've seen a very small portion of the folks choose to go in. So I would say virtually all of, of those two groups are, are working from home. And our supply chain logistics teams are, are working in the logistics operations. So we have we have both um, both things underway in the business. I, we think collaboration is really critical and important. We've been very... Um, you know, happy with how we've been able to do that over video conferencing and other types of messaging and other collaborative applications during the pandemic while everyone's working in different places. Um, that said, what we're hearing from folks is that they miss the office as well. And so I think when we get to a future normal, I think we're going to figure out what the right balance is to allow folks flexibility while making sure that we preserve what the company needs for collaboration, innovation, creativity, communication. And so I, th I think there'll be changes from what we did before. And I think, frankly, it'll be a little hard to figure out exactly what they are until we until we get to the get to the future normal. And I know this is a question that no one can really answer right now. But if you had to put a timeline on when things might get to the other side of the pandemic, what are you thinking about? Like, how, how are you planning for that? Well, we, we, we've told um, all those teams that we do not um, expect the earliest we would tell folks that, hey, you know, we kind of want everyone to, to be back in the office would be basically uh, next June. And that's a date we pushed back from uh, January. So when it started, we, we, you know, we said, okay, well, we know it's not until Labor Day. And then we said, we know it's not until January. Now we said, we know it's not until June. I think a lot of this, uh, we're just seeing how this is playing out in real time. You know, two vaccines have been announced with great early results. We'll see how the final results come in. Then there's a period of time for the first round of them. Then, the, then there's a couple months um, until there's a wider round available. So there's a bit of a trajectory and some of that's out of the control of companies like ours. And so what we'll see is how this plays out. But I'm optimistic by the time we, we, we get into something in the later part of next year, we're seeing things have returned to a, a much more normal state. And Yard, you are a director at the Boston Federal Reserve, which is one of the 12 regional uh, Fed banks. And the Boston Fed's been very vocal this year about the need to solve the public health crisis around COVID-19 um, in order to solve the bigger economic crisis. I wonder how you've advised the Boston Fed based on what you've seen at Wayfair. Well, you know, my, so my uh, tenure on the board of the Fed ended um, uh, at the end of last year. So I'm, I'm not ah. on the board this year, just to, just for clarity. But um, but I would share I would share the view um, um, that, that you that you just share that um, ending the pandemic is critical to really helping uh, the economy broadly uh, fully get going and to help a lot of disadvantaged folks who are struggling um, get going. Ah, poor research on my part. My, my apologies. Um, let's talk a little bit here about Cornell, because we usually have people who are based in New York joining us uh, for Cornell Tech at Bloomberg. You, of course, have the Cornell Connection, and you are on the Cornell Tech Council, which is the school's equivalent of the board. Give us your observations on how the school has adapted to the pandemic. I think the school has done a great job adapting to the pandemic. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I think, you know, if you think about Cornell Tech, it's really a very progressive, forward-looking school. When you look at the areas, the subject matters of study, and you look at what it's focusing on, it's really, it's a... Um, it's research and academic training oriented around the future and the, the fields that will matter in the future. And so that's part, part of why I'm so excited to be contributing. You're based in Boston. Um, it's not Silicon Valley. It's not New York, which uh, I think the term is uh, Silicon Alley 
what's unique about starting a startup in, in a city like Boston? Because you don't have the big banks around you like you would in New York. You don't have the built-in tech community like you would in California. Yeah. So what's nice about Boston is you have on one hand, you know, a, a you know, kind of a great town. So it's a, it's a town that's very livable um, and, you know, full of, full of a variety of industries, great folks. Then it has some, you know, it has two of the top 10 universities in the world. It has 100 colleges and universities in the metro area. It's got world-class healthcare institutions. It's a world leader in biotech. So it has a lot of industries that are very prominent. And then if you look at the technology, it's broad-based. So it's not just biotech. It's not just robotics. It's not just audio. It's not just internet. It's not just B2B software. But you see leaders across all of those segments. And I think that's why when you look over the last decade, after Silicon Valley, Boston's had the second most successful series of tech outcomes. And I think it's just something that's not as well known about Boston because it's not a city as large as New York. But when you look specifically at tech success stories, Boston actually is number two after the Valley. And so that combination, I think, makes it a great place to both live and build a business. And that's why I've really enjoyed being here. What about when it comes to recruiting for talent? Um, is it easier to get people to stay in Boston? You talked about the university scene there. And is it easier to get MIT graduates, for instance, to stay in Boston as opposed to going off to sunny California? Yeah, so we, re we recruit on campus at a lot of colleges and universities, a number of which are in the Boston metro area, a number of which aren't. And I would say we have pretty good success with Boston being a very attractive place for folks. We also recruit nationally for jobs. And what we find is that we can get folks to relocate to Boston because it's such a great town to raise a family in. Uh, some, of the, some of the other cities like New York, you end up with either incredibly high costs or incredibly long commutes. And so some of the advantages Boston can offer um, have helped substantially. You think that changes though with the pandemic and, and people falling out of love with cities? You know, I think a lot, it's, it's yet to be seen how, what, how that's gonna play out. I, I'm pretty bullish that urban centers will continue to do well, but obviously we're in the middle of an upheaval. So we're going to have to let that play out a little longer. Yeah. Don't want to commit to an answer there just yet. Neeraj, uh, what businesses or entrepreneurs do you admire, do you respect? Yeah. So uh, I would say the, you know, one of the things I've noticed are the companies that have had a focused strategy and then have stuck with it and sort of done incredibly well by compounding things over a long period of time while staying true to their basics. And so if you look at, you know, Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger and what they did with Berkshire Hathaway and how over a very long period of time they've been able to continue to grow that business, kind of sticking to the core ideals they've always had. Um, or earlier, you mentioned Microsoft. Microsoft is a tech company that's had to reinvent itself a number of times, but has done that and has continued to be a leader. I mean, there's different companies that are just incredibly impressive in, in how they've sort of um, sort of stuck to what they know, but not ever let up or given up. And, and I think those are the companies I first think of. Yeah, going with the classics there. How, are there any companies or people that you've lost respect for over time? You know, I, I think obviously different things happen and things come and go, but I tend to, um, you know, the, the companies I tend to admire the most are the ones, you know, it takes, I really like the, the, the ones who actually show the long-term nature of outcomes. And so I tend not to get too wound up with things that come up too quickly or go down too quickly. Okay, looking for longevity there. All right, Neeraj Shah, um, I want to now open up our discussion because uh, we do have questions and answers, or answers from you, questions from a couple of Cornell Tech students. And uh, we may be virtual, but this is something that we do normally. And hopefully the technology will cooperate again. I'm gonna call up uh, Saul Kadir to see if he's available and can ask Neeraj a question. Saul? 
Hey, how's it going, Nirish? Thanks for taking the time. Happy to do it, Saul. Cool. So uh, one thing that really resonated with me with in your story, uh, is specifically your founding story with uh, Steve Conine, is um, how you both were, you met summer before Cornell, were engineering students, and I kind of find myself in a situation or a similar situation with uh, Dean, who's also asking a question on this call, where we're both CS students here at Cornell Tech. We met the summer before classes started and are both working on a venture through Product Studio. And I would love to hear a bit more about your founding story, specifically, like what areas you guys both focused on in the early days and how you sort of portrayed your roles as a founding team to outside people. Yeah, so I would say, you know, really for us, when we started our first business, we were excited about the potential of where it could go. We were excited about the potential of the internet. Um, you know, that first year, we probably ended up working, you know, 90, 100 hour weeks. It was, it was one of those things where it was just incredibly busy all the time. That's not something that I think is necessarily durable forever, but for us and for the beginning of the business, that's what it needed to get going. And we were willing to do that. Um, and so I would say in terms of how folks outside thought of us, you know, our friends knew what we were doing. They, they, they thought that that was, you know, uh, interesting. I would say it was very non-traditional. We didn't have a lot of friends who were pursuing entrepreneurial ventures. Most folks were either in graduate school or pursuing more traditional uh, type jobs. But, you know, I think it, it didn't, it wasn't really viewed as something crazy, but it wasn't very common at all. All right, let's also call up Dean Zimberg. Uh, Sol mentioned that Dean had a question. Dean, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. So it seems that success, especially in hindsight, comes in part from being in the right place at the right time. In your early career life, I'm sure you're faced with many opportunities, doors that would open and close at certain times, such as deciding between grad school or moving forward with your startup. How did you choose when to walk through or not walk through certain doors of opportunity? Further, did you have a feeling of serendipity or happenstance when you met your co-founder? Yeah, well, I mean, so Steve and I were good friends. And so in, in that sense, you know, the idea of starting something with a friend is very, very comfortable. In terms of the decisions like, you know, not attending graduate school, honestly, none of those ever felt that difficult because like, for example, that one, the way I looked at it as well, really excited about the opportunity with this business. And if it doesn't work out, I can always go back to school. And so it wasn't so much that you were making a permanent decision, but you were rather making a decision on what you were going to do then. And I think that's an important point to consider because, you know, there's a handful of decisions that are permanent, but most decisions are, are more about the next leg of the journey. And I think trying to make the wise ones there um, matter. If you were to go back to school, if you were your 16, 17 year old self, or even in college, is there anything that you would have studied um, knowing what you know about starting a business this today? You know, there's, there's, a, you know, I, I think I would have, for example, I find economics fascinating as part of what I enjoyed about the, the role on the Boston Fed board. I would have taken more economics courses in, in school if I had the credits available for that. At the same time, I really enjoyed being an engineering student. I think engineering is an incredible foundational training um, for all types of things in life, and including being an entrepreneur. So I think there's, there's just trade-offs. There's just trade-offs. You know, I've been happy with, with what I've chosen. Yeah, it's worked out pretty well for you. Nirish Shah, thank you so much. Nirish Shah is co-founder and CEO of Wayfair. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, 
or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for the invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.